And this is the record that God has given to us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Before we open the word of truth this morning, let's make sure that we are prepared for our study of God's word. Time of silent prayer so we can utilize 1 John 1.9 if necessary, God's grace recovery procedure to recover fellowship and the restoration of the filling of the We'll have a few moments of silent prayer and then we'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the privilege we have to look at Your Word, that it is a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. It is Your Word, Your written Word that illuminates our thinking, and it is Your living Word, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, the Logos of God, who is the one who revealed You to man, who exegeted You to us, according to John chapter 1. Now, Father, as we continue our study this morning of the Gospel of John, pray that we can focus on the tremendous truths that are here, that we can understand their impact on our lives and on our thinking, that our thinking indeed can be renovated and transformed by Your Word. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 9. John chapter 9, and we will begin our study in about verse 13 after we do some review and clean up a few loose ends from last time. Jesus made a pronouncement in John chapter 8. He said, I am the light of the world. Ever since He made that statement, He has been developing it. At least that is the theme of John, the Apostle, in writing this, the way he has organized his material in these chapters. He is developing for us what is meant by the light of the world. Now, last time, we saw that Jesus is demonstrating this in a unique way with this particular miracle that takes place outside the temple. Let me remind you of the context. Early that morning, in the early hours before dawn, Jesus made His way to the temple. This is just after the Feast of the Tabernacles. The Pharisees brought the woman caught in adultery to Him in order to trap Jesus into some sort of contradiction with the law of Moses. Jesus finessed the situation in a remarkable way because the issue was their legalistic interpretation of the law they were not concerned about, really about the law. They weren't concerned about the woman. They were concerned simply with trapping Jesus. That initiated an entire discussion that went through uh, John 8 as the conflict intensified, ending with a remarkable statement by Jesus that was a clear statement of His deity and one that created an enormous reaction among the Pharisees that were there, they began to pick up stones to stone Him on the spot. And Jesus walked through the crowd, went out the gate of the temple, and then as He has left those who were spiritually blind behind, so He's going down the steps of the temple, there is a blind beggar. And He heals the man of his congenital blindness. In John chapter 9, we see that Jesus is continuing his confrontational tactics with the Pharisees. He is provoking both the mobs and the religious leaders to anger. This is not the Jesus that most people think of. This is a Jesus, though, of the Bible. 
This is the trouble today in our culture. We present people with the gospel of a Jesus who is on his knees begging and imploring people to come to him. But this is not the Jesus of the Bible. We have people who present the gospel in terms of, I found it. And if we listen to the blind man, it's not that he's saying, I found it, but he found me and healed me. That's the right perspective. So we see in our day that modern Christians are perverting and diluting the gospel by their very approach to Jesus. Now as we come to this, we see that although there is increased antagonism and the leaders become more and more hostile to Jesus, and there is a greater division among the masses. And this division is becoming more and more pronounced. They are becoming angry, hostile, and violent, and they have determined to find some way to put him to death. What we learn from this is a very important principle. Provoking somebody to anger and hostility is not in and of itself wrong. Think about that. In our psychologized society, the last thing we want to do is provoke somebody to anger. But that's not how it's presented here in the Scriptures. Jesus is intentionally doing things to challenge the Pharisees and to provoke them to anger. He has healed the blind man. Now remember, the blind man is not saved. He didn't know who that was standing in front of him. He heard the conversation between Jesus and, the, and his disciples. And he heard this man suddenly reach over to him and, and apply this some sort of poultice. He didn't know what it was to his eyes. Remember, the man is blind. He can't see. All he can do is hear. And last time we looked at the doctrine of healing. This is a major distraction today. And I reviewed some of the ways in which this doctrine has been perverted in our society. Most people don't understand that there are two different healing movements that have come down to us in our culture. They both had their foundations in the 19th century. One of them had a non-Christian background, and that was influenced by the... um, Well, I need to find a better overhead pen here. That was influenced by the transcendentalism of people like Ralph Waldo Emerson and Thoreau. There was a, and this was based on mental energy. And probably the most well-known teacher of it in that day was a man named Phineas Quimby. Phineas Quimby influenced uh, two people, or several people really, but two of the most pronounced were uh, Mary Baker Glover Patterson Eddy. And she took the metaphysical New Thought teachings of uh, Phineas Quimby and transferred those into a whole new uh, religious uh, sect called Christian Science. And Christian Science tries to approach the problem with evil from the assumption that it's merely a mental aberration. For ultimate reality is what takes place in the mind. There is no real physical world. So we can deny the symptoms. It's just a deception. This is one of three ways in which uh, modern man has to answer the question, the problem of evil, and we looked at those last time. The other was the influence of Quimby through a man named, um, another man by the name of Emerson, not related to Ralph Waldo Emerson, and he had a school of oratory in Boston and influenced a guy named E.W. Kenyon. I think I got those initials wrong last time. E.W. Kenyon. And Kenyon didn't think that Christian science had enough of the blood of Christ. He came out of sort of a quasi-Methodist, odd, mixed, holiness theology background. And E.W. Kenyon wrote a number of of works, and and he blends a lot of biblical terminology. And, of course, these people proof text everything. If you read the literature, there's all sorts of Scripture attached to it. You should always be aware that if you read anything that's got Scripture there, you need to look at that Scripture and see if it really says what it's claimed to say. E.W. Kenyon then influenced people like um, 
Kenneth Hagin Sr., who is considered the father of the modern word of faith movement, faith healing movement. So that comes down here, the faith healing movement that has infected Pentecostal circles. Now, Pentecostalism came out of another background. You had holiness theology, and that gave birth to the holiness Pentecostal movement, and that had its own healing tradition, and that merged in the late 40s in the great tent healing revivals that gave birth to the, to the healing revivalists like Oral Roberts and Kenneth Hagin and, and a number of others. It gave birth to this whole new word of faith, name it, claim it, positive confession movement, which says that ultimately the symptoms I have are not real. What reality is is what I confess with my mouth, what I think with my mind. It's just a baptized, I put that in quotes, version of Christian science. Now, the question is that I didn't clarify at the end last week, and this is all I want to do by review of healing, is the question, does God heal today? Of course He does. God is still sovereign. He is still omnipotent. I am sick and tired, angry to the point of distraction with hearing these idiot charismatics, and I'm talking about people who were once my friends and professors at Dallas Seminary, make these absurd claims in print that those of us who aren't engaged in some kind of an emotional jump-the-aisle healing service every Sunday morning don't believe that God heals. I mean, this is the claim that they project on television, on radio, in print. It is a public lie. They do it again and again and again, and it is just false. We certainly believe God can heal, and we have prayer meetings weekly, and we pray for the sick. And we believe God can heal them. We just believe that in 99.99% of the cases, He probably won't, because that's never been God's agenda. When Jesus came to the planet, His His goal was not to heal people. It was not to alleviate suffering. If it was, He would have healed everybody at the pool of Bethesda instead of just that one man out of two or three hundred. It is not the plan and purpose of God to alleviate our suffering on planet earth. So God does heal. Does He do it directly or indirectly? This is the second question. Indirectly involves the use of spiritually gifted people, or directly involves simply His sovereign choice in response to prayer. Yes, He heals directly, but no, He does not heal indirectly. Certain spiritual gifts such as healing, word of knowledge, word of faith, tongues, apostleship, these gifts were temporary gifts that just as Jesus' healing signified His messianic claims in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, the healing ministries of the apostles and certain other individuals in the early church before the canon of Scripture was completed served as a calling card to provide credentials for their ministry. So those gifts passed out of the church by the end of the first century and are no longer in effect. So what is going on today with these people who claim all of these various things? Well, who knows? There's so many factors that enter in. In fact, they say that the same percentage of people are, are, are healed through going to some sort of faith healer, from a Hindu faith healer or a Muslim faith healer as these Christian faith healers, which indicates that there's a certain psychological element to the whole thing. But you never, you never find these healers healing people from constitutional diseases, leukemia, liver cancer, pancreatic cancer, congenital blindness, multiple sclerosis. You don't find that. It doesn't happen. What you find is people who have back problems or leg problems or headaches or these simple things that can't be attested or documented are always emphasized, not the things that are truly remarkable. So yes, God does heal. Yes, we should pray for healing. 
but more we should pray that people would utilize doctrine in the midst of that physical suffering because physical suffering and disease is indeed a problem. I tell the story in the book that Tommy and I wrote on spiritual warfare because the response you always get, and I know some of you wrestle with this in your, your situations, you always hear the response, what about faith? Jesus says if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can move mountains, and if you really believe God, He'll heal you. You just don't have enough faith. The Scripture says you have to have a faith as a child. And I always tell the story that when I was a little boy, probably six or seven years old, I became, after I was saved, I trusted the Lord when I was about six, I became aware that my mother was not like anybody else's mother. My mother had polio just before I was born, and I've never seen her walk. And I thought, well, goodness, God can heal her, so I'm just going to ask Jesus to heal her. I think that's the faith of a child. I was not... Golly, I wasn't confused by sophisticated theology at that age. I just knew that Jesus could give her the power to walk if He wanted to. And I would pray for that every single night. And I did that for several years as a young child. And she's still in a wheelchair. Because that wasn't God's plan. God has a plan for, and purpose for suffering in the life of believers. And the problem with the uh, healing movements is they do not have an accurate theology of suffering and testing. And they don't understand how that fits in God's plan and purposes for spiritual life and spiritual growth. And consequently, they produce believers when they do produce believers. And a lot of these people do preach a clear gospel. That's as far as it goes. But there's no real spiritual growth. Well, that ends our discussion of healing, and we need to move on to the impact of this whole episode. After Jesus, as Jesus prepares to heal this man, in order to make sure we get the point that he is illustrating what he has said earlier, that he is the light of the world, he repeats that in verse 5, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, in order to understand this, we need, and the impact of this, we need to compare some Scriptures. We need to look at how Scripture looks at the role of light. And we need to look at the context. John is doing something remarkable here. He's trying to impact us with the reality of what light does in darkness. Because you and I are light, and when we go out, we are living in the midst of... Of darkness, And whenever light hits darkness, it's going to have a reaction. Now, we, we will jump. I want to jump to the last page. Every now and then when I read a murder mystery, I have to look at the end just to see what happens so that I can figure out how the author gets us from point A to the conclusion. I know that's impatient, but... That's just the trend of my sin nature. So let's skip over to verse 39. When this is all over with, and this blind man finally trusts Christ as his Savior, Jesus makes this statement, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Notice what he says, it is for judgment that I came into the world. So we're seeing two main ideas in this whole chapter. Light and judgment. Now let's turn back to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 17. I remember in seminary, my first year in Bible study methods course, we had to uh, do a little exercise on observation. And in that exercise, we were given an assignment to read Acts 1.8. And we were told to go home, and for the next class, we were to turn in an assignment that listed 25 observations on Acts 1-8. Well, we did that, and we turned that in, and we were told to go home that night and write out 25 more observations on Acts 1-8. This went on for three or four weeks until we were up around 350 observations. And in this process, we're being taught about context, 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 that every verse has a context in a paragraph. Paragraph has a context in a section. Section, or subsection. Section, subsection has context in a section. Section has a context in the division of the book. That has a context in the theme of that book. That book has a context 
in the New Testament. And the New Testament has a context in the Old Testament. So if we're going to properly interpret and observe in any verse, ultimately we have to relate it to the entire breadth and depth of God's revelation. So that's what we're doing this morning so we can understand why this is so important. John is building a legal case to demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah and he's going to demonstrate this in phenomenal ways. Now, in John 17, John chapter 3 verse 17, John state, makes the statement and I think it is the apostle John talking in verse 17. And he says, "For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world." Now we have the the verb krino. Now you have three Greek words. You have a verb Krino. K-R-I-N-O. You have a noun, Chrysis. K-R-I-S-I-S. And another noun, Chrisma. K-R-I-S-M-A. Now it's important to distinguish these. Krino is the act of a judge making a final judgment. Chrysis is the process of that judgment. And chrisma indicates the results of that judgment. Right now we'll just focus on crino and chrysis. Chrysis is where we get an English word crisis. So there's a crisis when Jesus comes. Chrysis is what we find in John 9. There's a crisis when the eternal second person of the Trinity penetrates human history incarnate as, a, as true humanity. He presents a crisis to every single human being that they have a decision to make. They can't hide anymore. And it will not be until the end of time that he exercises crino, judgment. So when John is writing in John 3.17, he says, For God did not send the Son into the world, that is, first advent purpose, was not to judge the world. That's not till second advent. At the conclusion of human history, at the great white throne judgment, then the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, will judge the world. But in the first advent, he exercised chrysis. Everywhere he went, people had to make a decision. God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Well, what is the judgment? And this is the judgment, crisis. This is the crisis for the human race. The judgment, the process of judgment. The light has come into the world. Who is the light? Jesus is the light. The light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light. Like roaches scurrying for their hiding place. When you get up in the middle of the night, you don't have roaches here, but we do down in Texas. You turn on the light, and just scurry of activity as all these creatures run for cover. That's what unbelievers are pictured, how they're pictured in the Scripture. When Jesus hits town... The unbelievers in negative volition scurry for cover. They have to come up with something to protect themselves against the penetrating power of the light. Men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. What we see here is the antagonism that exists between darkness and light. Darkness hates the light. Darkness is antagonistic to light. Unbelievers are antagonistic to Jesus Christ and to believers. Unbelievers are hostile to God. They cannot tolerate the presence of light in their vicinity. So they do everything they can in order to exclude it. That is what is being described here. And this is what John is illustrating for us In John 8 and 9, Jesus is the light and we see the the Pharisees who love the darkness constructing their bulwark to protect themselves from the penetration 
of the light. Now let's turn back two chapters to John chapter 1. I'm working this out backwards this time. John 1 verse 4. In Him, this is the eternal Logos who has become incarnate, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. So the light of God, Jesus Christ, is the source of life. There is a relationship between light and life, and we see that if we turn to Genesis chapter 1. So let's turn back to Genesis chapter 1. We read in verse 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. I want you to notice that there is a very specific cosmogony of Genesis. It is a scriptural viewpoint of creation. There is a very specific viewpoint of creation here that is in contrast to all pagan literature. If you go back to the time in which Moses wrote, in the middle 2nd century B.C., there were many other creation myths and epics written by the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Egyptians, and there is a 180 degree distinction between what is covered here in Genesis 1 and what is covered in the pagan uh, origin myths. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, describes the initial creation of the space-time universe and planet Earth. That's it. We don't know when that occurred. There is a disjunctive vav in the Hebrew that begins verse 2. You know it's disjunctive because the vav, which looks like this in the Hebrew, when that is attached to a verb, it is continuation. It is like and. That's the typical narrative style of Hebrew literature. And this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. But when you start your Hebrew construction with a noun at the beginning, vav plus a noun, it is disjunctive. It is translated but. There is a contrast. But the earth was formless and void. In the Hebrew, this is tohu. And then you have another vav, tohu, vabohu. And this is used in several passages in the Scriptures, including in Isaiah, where in Jeremiah, where it refers to judgment. The terminology that's used in verse 2 is used everywhere else in Scripture as an image. When I say that term, I don't mean it's not real. But it's used as a, with a double level of meanings, a physical meaning that's literal plus a secondary image impact. This is to indicate judgment. It's formless and void. There's chaos on the earth. God is a perfect God. He doesn't create chaos. And darkness is over the deep. Everywhere else in Scripture, darkness speaks of evil and sin. There is darkness over the surface of the deep. And also the term deep, tehom in the Hebrew, is also it's the churning salt water. And this is always carries the heavy image of chaos and sin and judgment. So the picture here is that at some point you have the creation of, I'll draw a circle here, you just have the space-time continuum and a planet. The angelic creation is there, and what that universe looked like, we don't know. Then there is something that happens, and we find planet Earth here, and there, it's in total darkness, which means everything's frozen, absolute zero, It is going to be packed in ice, therefore. There is no life. There is complete darkness. And it's it's just in this frozen ice pack. So that means there's judgment. What has happened? What has happened is the angelic revolt of Satan. Planet Earth was apparently the headquarters of this higher rational order that God had created. This was their headquarters. This was where Satan, as Lucifer, operated. He was the highest of all the angels. Now, it's interesting to speculate beyond that. But we shouldn't go there. We don't know. The only issue was that Satan chose to be like God and he fell. 
And after Satan's fall, the only issue for the rest of the angels, they were all created perfect. Their only issue was whether they were going to follow Satan in his rebellion or not. That was it. There's no redemption solution or anything else for the angels. It was just a matter of volition. All the angels were created simultaneously, came from the hand of God simultaneously. There is no organic unity among angelic creatures. Mama angels and Papa angels don't get together and make baby angels to have a common DNA link between the angelic creatures. They are each individual. They are, uh, each one is a species unto itself. So there's judgment. Now this is the picture of light penetrating the judgment. Verse 3, then God said, let there be light. Remember, John 1.1, God is light. In Him there is no darkness. So something has to have happened to create this darkness. And what happens is that God, this is a, this is a foreshadowing of His grace, God always penetrates the darkness with light. So we see a very specific uh, cosmogony here that there is a conflict between divine thought as expressed in Genesis 1 and human viewpoint thought. Human viewpoint thought always has everything starting with chaos and everything just sort of happens by chance, whether you're talking about ancient mythologies or you're talking about modern evolution. Interestingly enough, we're having another uh, controversy going on now because the state of Kansas has voted to exclude the teaching of Darwinian evolution from the classroom. Their tact is not that we're going to try to have objectivity. Notice you can't ever have objectivity. The darkness hates the light, so it always misrepresents the light. And there was a recent article about this in Time magazine, and I was amazed at this one article by Stephen Jay Gould who just misrepresented everything. I mean, he's just so biased and prejudiced he can't see truth, and that's typical of darkness. Darkness cannot see light. It misrepresents the light and it rejects the light because it's hostile to God. And so what they've decided to do, rather than try to introduce objectivity and say, okay, evolution's a theory, creation's a theory, we're going to teach both in the classroom as science. That doesn't mean to teach creation. Doesn't Creation science, and I've heard it lectured and I've heard it taught, they don't mention God, it's just raw science. Just scientific data. They don't mention the Bible. They don't mention God. They don't mention Jesus Christ. They just talk about it as a competing scientific theory. And yet in this article by Stephen Jay Gould in Time Magazine, he talked about the uh, Louisiana law they tried to pass and the Arkansas law about 15, 20 years ago where they tried to introduce competing models. And he said what they wanted to do was teach the Bible in the classroom. And that wasn't what the law said at all. The law said they were just going to teach scientific creation. But see, they can't be objective because darkness hates the light. There is always this conflict between the truth and the lie. And what they're trying to do in Kansas is, well, it's a theory. It can't be proven. It's just speculation. So we'll just exclude teaching speculative theories in the classroom. So that's an interesting approach. uh, Sort of the backward approach. If we can't teach creation alongside it, we won't teach either one of them. And so that's creating all kinds of controversy right now. Now let's turn from Genesis 1 to the end of the Bible, Revelation 22, and see how light is used in the eternal state at the end of history. Revelation chapter 22. The beginning of human history, because of angelic sin, there is darkness. Then we come to Revelation uh, chapter uh, 22. The eternal state, this is the new heavens and the new earth. And we are told that it is going to be in the new Jerusalem that God is going to establish His throne. Notice, before Genesis 1-2, in the original creation, Lucifer has his headquarters on planet earth. Earth, apparently, is the theological center of the universe. It is not the center of the solar system like some pre-Copernican view, but it is the theological center and focus. God is going to make planet Earth 
the location of his throne in Revelation 22.1. Then look at Genesis 22.5. And there shall no longer be any night, and there shall not have, they shall not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them. The Shekinah glory of God will illuminate the entire universe. No need of the light of a lamp or the sun, and we will reign forever and ever with the Lord. So all darkness, all sin is dispelled. Now, what we have in between these two events is human history. And the issue in human history is that creatures are being tested. Human creatures, the human race, is being tested in relationship to their volition, whether they are positive or negative. They are tested in four areas. First, are they creator or creature-oriented? This has to do with God consciousness. Are they going to be creator or creature-oriented? At some point in life, we become God-conscious, God aware, aware of the existence of God, or at least that there's something greater than us. Romans 1 says that everyone there's enough evidence for everyone to know God exists. That's going to be the issue at the final judgment of the great white throne. Apparently, the typical response is going to be, but God, you just didn't give me enough information. I just needed to know more. And God says there was more than enough information. Every tree, every animal, every bird, every fish, every rock screamed out the existence of God. And man rejected it in the hardness of his heart. So his decision at God consciousness, is he going to be creator-oriented or creature-oriented? Point number two. Will they submit to the authority of God or not submit to the authority of God? So question number two is authority orientation to God. Issue number three. Gospel orientation. Will they accept Jesus Christ or reject Him? Positive volition or negative volition at gospel hearing. And then the fourth issue is, will they be grace-oriented and advance in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Or even though they accept the gospel and become believers, will they reject grace and go, go in either reversionism or uh, moral reversionism, which is legalism. During this time of testing, creature orientation, authority orientation to God, whether it will be creator-oriented, number one, authority orientation to God, number two, gospel-oriented, point three, grace-oriented, point four. The issue is going to be volition. Man will not, and volition excludes all manipulation and all Coercion. Now, sadly, this is something that very few believers have understood. That God gives us freedom because God wants the believer to advance on the basis of his own decisions, not because he has been manipulated or coerced. Of course, this is the modus operandi of all legalism, is to manipulate, manipulate and coerce people to live up to some sort of legal code or agenda as the means of advancing spiritually. And grace always has a head-to-head confrontation with legalism. Legalism is the uh, M.O. of the sin nature in the flesh and thus is, in effect, walking in darkness. And whenever the light appears, the light of grace appears, there is always the conflict with the darkness. Now, when Jesus comes, let's go back to John. Now that we have the overall view of how light and darkness function within the Bible and what this is saying, that light represents God and all that God is and the divine uh, entrance into the human race, and it, and it is, in effect, talks about grace. Jesus comes along and demonstrates this through His healing of the blind man. Everything here speaks about grace. This man is not a believer. He has not approached Jesus to be healed. He is just sitting there by the side of the steps 
with his cup out or his basket out. He smells bad. He looks bad. He is offensive to everyone around him. And yet Jesus singles him out to restore his sight. And in the process, Jesus is doing much more than simply alleviating this poor man's suffering. That's almost secondary. Jesus is also thumbing his nose, as it were, at the Pharisees. He is deliberately engineering this event to irritate and challenge the legalistic thinking of the Pharisees. First of all, he bends down and he picks up some of the dirt right there by the steps of the Pharisee. This is the dirt that's fallen off of people's feet because the steps are made out of, out of marble. So he picks up the dirt and he spits. Violation of sabbatical law number one. Now he has this mixture of dirt and spittle in his hands and he begins to mix it up and knead it. Violation of sabbatical law number two. Mishnah 7.2 forbids any kneading. So he sits there and he kneads this uh, mixture of clay and spittle and then he puts it on his eyes. Now the man recognizes what this is in his recitation of the story in verse 11. He says, The man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes. According to uh, Shabbat uh, 12, it is forbidden to anoint anyone on the Sabbath. So Jesus is specifically doing certain things in order to rile the Pharisees. But as I said last time, he's also demonstrating certain things about volition. He is doing the Godward side in preparing the person and uh, comparable to gospel hearing. This is analogous to the Holy Spirit making the gospel understandable to the individual. But it is still up to the individual's volition to go down the street, down the steps, down to the, to the uh, pool of Siloam and wash off the, the uh, clay that Jesus has put on his eyes, which is comparable to our exercise of volition in response to the gospel and trusting in Christ. He believed it when Jesus said, when you wash it off at the pool of Siloam, you will see. And then the most phenomenal thing takes place in this miracle. The man opens his eyes and he can see. Now, we ran past that kind of quick last time. But let's stop and think about what's involved in this miracle. We don't know the cause of the man's blindness. We know he was congenitally blind, so it he either had some malfunction of his eyeball, some malfunction of the cornea or the lens or the optic nerve, or maybe the cones didn't work inside his eyeball. Uh, the optic nerve might not have been connected properly to his brain. But whatever it is, he never saw. Now, what does that mean? That means that during those formative periods, after birth, during that first two or three weeks to, to probably year and a half, during which time the brain is establishing its pathways in the neurons of the brain, there, there are no pathways established for identification and recognition of color at all. He doesn't have it there. So there's no neuron pathways established so that he can identify and interpret what he sees if he could see. So notice what happens in this miracle. His sight is restored, the optic nerve works, and at the same time, instantly along with this, Jesus restores and creates in the man's brain the neuron pathways so that when he washes that clay off his eyes, he not only can see white and blue and green and realize that there is a difference between these colors, but he can identify what they are. He can see them now and properly interpret them for what they are. Now what this means for you and me as believers is that before salvation we were spiritually blind. We could not see things and we could not properly interpret the data. This is the unbelieving, I'll use the illustration from earlier so that it flows. This is the unbelieving evolutionist who is out there interacting with the fossil record. 
He sees the right facts, but he can't interpret them because he doesn't, he's excluded the Bible completely from the realm of information. Because he is spiritually dead, according to 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man cannot understand the things of God because they are spiritually discerned. But once you are regenerated and you have a human spirit and the Holy Spirit, you have the ability to accurately understand and interpret spiritual data. And that comes further through the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit and learning Bible doctrine as you advance in the spiritual life. So we see this phenomenal ministry take place here, and it's all related to the infusion of light. Now let's turn back. Turn back to chapter 8, and let's look at verse 12 again. And I want to put something together that's been gnawing around the edges of my consciousness ever since I hit 8.12 two or three weeks ago. Again, therefore, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Now, when I spoke... I made the point that this is not necessarily a salvation verse. This goes way beyond salvation. Because in the next statement, Jesus says, He who follows Me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. Once again, we're talking about walking. Walking is the spiritual progression from salvation on in the spiritual life. It's not talking about salvation. That this is the issue that John, sort of a subtext that John wants us to notice here, is further illustrated by Jesus' next explanation to the believers in the crowd in verse 31. There he says, If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth. The truth is the light. The truth is that which illuminates the darkness of ignorance of spiritual things. If you abide in my word, and you are truly disciples of mine, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So the function of the light is to illuminate the mind to truth. And truth is that which God defines as truth and has revealed in His Word. And now we come to John 8, 5, where Jesus shows the dynamics of this in terms of the process of healing. It's not just the simple process of restoring sight, but it is providing the entire mechanism for identifying and interpreting that which is seen. And then he tells the man to go and wash, and the man comes. Now, starting down in verse 13, we see the reaction of legalism. The reaction of legalism. John 9, 1 through 12 is Jesus healing the blind man. And John 9, 13 to 34 is the reaction of the legalistic Pharisees to the blind man. We see the context in verses 13 and 14. They brought to the Pharisees, this is the crowd, they brought to the Pharisees him who was formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath, Shabbat. It was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Incidentally, the very act of Jesus leaning over and picking up the clay said something. God reached down and picked up the soil, the chemicals of the soil, and fashioned the body of Adam. So when Jesus uses clay here, and He uses that to create sight, He is giving an object lesson which says, I am the Creator of the universe, and I am the one who has the authority to teach the truth. This is in contrast to the Pharisees. What we're going to see with this, what's so fantastic about this, is in the next chapter in John 10, which is, the conclusion of this event, where we see its real theological import, Jesus brings this whole interchange, this whole courtroom conflict between Jesus as the prosecutor from God against the Pharisees, the representatives of rebellious man, to a conclusion where He shows that He is the Good Shepherd, and by His words and works He has demonstrated that He alone has the right to lead the nation, and that they are false shepherds, who are hirelings. 
And so this, we're, we're building a crescendo here, and I don't want to get so bogged down in the details of what's happening that we lose sight of where this is going, so we lose the punch that John intends for us to feel. The Pharisees react. Jesus, the, the blind man is brought to them, and so we see the first stage of the Inquisition. This is like a courtroom scene. The witness is on the stand, and the, the defense attorney now, the Pharisees, come forward to ask the questions. And they say in verse 15, um, How did you receive your sight? And he said to them, this is the response of the witness, He applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. It's empirical data. I couldn't see before, now I see. Therefore, conclusion, this is the reaction on the side of the defense attorney. Some of the Pharisees were saying, this man, talking about Jesus, is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. Oh my, he did this on the Sabbath. It violated Sabbath, uh, Shabbat 7-2. Oh my, How, what are we going to do? This guy's walking around violating Shabbat 7-2. What are we going to handle this? Who cares that this guy's been blind from birth and now he sees? This little bitty technical legal aspect's been violated. Let's just get all bent out of shape. Obviously, the guy violates the Mosaic Law. He can't be from God. On the other hand, notice the light divides. Truth divides people. Doctrine divides people. Doctrine is always going to divide people. The fact that people are divided over doctrine is not something bad. That only comes out of ecumenical Modern thought. Modern man, oh, you know, we all have to get together and just uh, have a great joy in our experience with Jesus and, and how wonderful it is to be together and let's not divide over all these doctrinal things. Well, Jesus continually was saying that I'm the light and I'm here to divide people. When I make a statement of truth, people are either going to accept it or reject it and you're going to take up swords against one another. There's going to be a battle over the truth. You have to understand that light is always going to have this kind of effect on people. And it did. The Pharisees started arguing. On the one hand, there were those who were saying he couldn't be from God. And the others are saying, how can a man who is a sinner do such a thing? If he's a sinner, he couldn't heal him. So there's a division among them. Verse 17, they continue the interrogation. This is phase one of the interrogation. What do you say about him? Okay. You say He healed you. What do you say about Him since He opened your eyes? Is He a prophet? Verse 18. John gives us a hint as to what's going on behind the scenes. The Jews therefore did not believe it of Him that He had been blind. They're faced with this profound empirical data, folks. It's right there in front of them. It's evidence that there's a universal flood. and it, Oh, it can't be. It's evidence that dinosaurs and man lived on the planet at the same time, and it's... No, it can't be. The evidence is plainer than the nose of your face, but negative volition from darkness says, I can't accept the truth. If it's true, I'm a sinner. I must humble myself before God. I can't live with that because I'm arrogant and I'm going to make life work on my own, so I must construct my own reality. I must construct my own ideas about origins. I must construct my own values because if I'm not right, then I'm a sinner destined for hell and I can't live with that. That's the problem with Darkness. Darkness is arrogantly set on its own presuppositions. They have presupposed that this can't be Jesus. They have presupposed the validity of their religious system. And the truth will never... Don't confuse me with facts. My mind is made up. You know, presuppositions are powerful things. It's like the man who went to the doctor. He was sent to the doctor by the courts because he was driving his family nuts because he... He swore that he was, he was dead. He was psychotic. So he goes to the, to the psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist is going to show him that he's not really dead. How can, I, how can he prove it to him? Okay, we're going to get this guy convinced that living things bleed. So they go down to the zoo, and they go to different places. They uh, get a needle out, and they prick the cat, and they prick the dog, and all these living things bleed. And finally, this guy is convinced that if it's alive, it bleeds. Living things bleed. So the psychiatrist pulls out his needle and pokes the guy in the arm. He starts to bleed and he jumps up and he says, My gosh, dead men bleed after all. <laughs> the issue in gospel presentation is not that we're going to convince people 
with the facts. Once you get past that in evangelism, then you can have tremendous confidence. Jesus healed a blind man, and the Pharisees said he was demon-possessed. He had to have done it under the power of the devil. They're right there. They deny it. He wasn't really healed. He wasn't really blind. They can't accept what it truly means because they have a preset agenda of human autonomy and religion. Now, they just, they're going to get more data. So they call his parents in. The Inquisition intensifies. And it is an Inquisition because the whole atmosphere here is one of fear. And, and that, that's how legalism controls, is through fear. Notice, the parents come in and they just want to, uh, let's get out of here. We don't want to get kicked out of the synagogue. We don't want, want anything negative to happen. We don't want to create any controversy. Does that remind you of anybody? It's, they question the parents, is this your son who says he was born blind? How can he now see? And his parents answered and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we don't know. Now, who opened his eyes? We don't know that either. Ask him. He's of age. He shall speak for himself. We don't want to get involved. We're going to go home. It's okay. We don't know anything. We hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews because for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Him to be Christ, that they would kick Him out of the synagogue. You see, legalism always seeks to control. One of the greatest ways that legalism controls in legalistic churches is through money. And you have the awful imposition of tithing on people. Now, tithing was something from the Old Testament that was for believer and unbeliever alike in the nation Israel. It was to support the bureaucracy, which was the priests and the Levites. It was designed to support the temple. And there were three different tithes that were taken. And we covered all that in the first hour. But what happens is legalism says we want money. We have this wonderful, beautiful church that we've built. And we need all this money and we need to keep this going. And people are negative to doctrine. They don't want the truth. So now we're going to impose some sort of manipulation on them to get their money. And we're going to motivate them by guilt and by fear. And we're going to impose this uh, legalistic concept on them to uh, always give 10%. We saw in our study this morning that Zacchaeus didn't know anything about legalism, so he gave 50%. He understood grace. Grace means generosity. And that's why I am committed to the principle in giving that we always will operate on a grace principle. Because if people are really positive to the truth, they're going to respond in grace. And it's going to impact their pocketbook. And the local church will not hurt for anything as far as it goes financially. But as soon as people don't care about grace, and as people start treating grace uh, cavalierly and taking advantage of God and treating God, uh, taking Him for granted, then they're going to quit giving. And then people always say when the money dries up, well, let's do this to get money. Let's do that to give money. Let's have this program in a bazaar and a garage sale. And folks, it's either going to operate on the principle of grace because... You're being impacted by God's Word and it's going to cause you to respond by grace-giving or it's not. And if it's not by grace, it's not worth it, so let's close the doors and go home. And the same thing is true for our tape ministry and the Internet ministry. All of that costs money, but it's going to be funded by the people who listen on the Internet and it's going to be funded by people who get tapes because they respond from from grace, They understand the grace of God. They respond in gratitude to what they're learning, to the spiritual food they're getting, and so they give to support the ministry. If there's not positive volition and there's not giving to support it, then we're not going to do it. So that's why we've separated the, the Tate ministry out from the regular budget from the church so that it will be a self-supporting ministry. And if there's positive volition to support it, great. If not, great. It's all in the hands of God. God's going to supply the here and God's going to supply the resources. But the issue is, are people responding from grace or are they responding from fear? And we see this illustrated here that legalism always operates on the basis for fear. Now, in verse 24, they bring the guy in for level 2 interrogation. They call the man in and they say, glorify God now. Notice, religious people love to use God talk. They pepper their conversation with, oh, praise God, glorify God, praise Jesus. And, and it's just pure legalism, and they think that somehow God's impressed by all that religious verbiage. 
I think God's nauseated by it, but that's my opinion. Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. That is Jesus. And the blind man says, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. This answer is so profound, and he's so sarcastic, and he's an unbeliever. He doesn't have a clue as to what the truth is yet. He's just going to confound the, uh, uh, the Pharisees because even though he's an unbeliever, he's got a level of objectivity that the legalistic Pharisees don't have. Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. How can you refute that? I was blind. Everybody knows it. The whole town knows it. My parents know You're the only guys who don't believe it because you can't accept the implications. They said, therefore, to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I told you already you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Oh, that must be it. I love the sarcasm. The Holy Spirit obviously has a great sense of humor and wants us to enjoy it as well. And they reviled him. So they just react. They, they fragment all over the place, get angry and hostile. They accuse the blind man, who's not even a believer, of being his disciple. He says, you're his disciple, but we're disciples of Moses. It just drips with their arrogance. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but for this man, we do not know where he is from. The blind man's answer great. Well, here's an amazing thing that you don't know where he is from and yet he opened my eyes. You don't understand anything about this man and yet he's doing something that was never done in all of human history. Elijah didn't do it. Elisha didn't do it. Samuel didn't do it. Moses didn't do it. And this man does it and you don't, you're the religious leaders and you don't know. And he goes on in verse 31. So he's got some knowledge of, of, of at least Judaism at that time. He says, we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does His will, God will hear him. Conclusion, if God would heal from this man and hear his prayer and heal, he's obviously not a sinner. Since the beginning of time, it's never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. And then the Pharisees react in verse 34. They answered and said to him, you were born entirely in sin. You're just a rotten sinner. You're sarcastic. You're trying to teach us. And they kick him out of the synagogue. His parents were afraid of being excommunicated. And this is the first believer in history to be socially ostracized and religiously ostracized because of his testimony. He's not even a believer yet. And then he goes to Jesus in verse 35. And Jesus heard that they had put him out. And finding him, he said... And this is the invitation. This is the only issue for salvation. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Notice Jesus doesn't say, are you going to clean up your life? He doesn't say, are you going to uh, come follow me and be one of my disciples? He says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now the man wants a little clarification, which often happens when we witness to people. Who is that Son of Man, Lord, that I may believe in Him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. This is one of the most plain statements Jesus makes next to the one he makes to the woman at the well, identifying himself. He says, I am he. I am the Son of Man. And the blind man says, Lord, I believe. That's it. He's saved. He doesn't say, Lord, I believe, and he cleaned up his life and he followed him or anything else, because the issue is faith alone in Christ alone. And then Jesus sums up what's happening here. For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and that those who see, and the implication here is those who think they do because of arrogance, may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with Him heard these things and said to Him, we're not blind too, are we? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, since you claim to have truth, that condemns you. So this stands as a statement of condemnation that when truth comes, it divides. Jesus, in the very fact of His presence, was forcing judgment. His final judgment doesn't come till the second coming, to the end of the millennium at the great white throne judgment. But His very presence is continually forcing people to make a decision. And so that's the process of that judgment. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank You for Your Word.
for the clarity of it, for the fact that you have addressed every issue in life. You have given us that perfect framework for understanding and evaluating all the details of life. And you have given us above all things the revelation of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is without hope, without eternal life, that they would take the opportunity right now to respond to this invitation that Jesus gave. Do you believe in the Son of Man? That's all that is required. Do you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and He was buried and rose again on the third day? All you have to do is believe that and you have eternal life. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to join a church, give money. You don't have to reform your life. You don't have to do anything at all. Just believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Now, Father, we pray that You would help us to remember the things we have learned, to meditate on them, to think about them, that the Holy Spirit may make them a part of our thinking as He renovates our our thinking and our life. In Jesus' name, Amen.